0: Welcome to the BCP and Me, the podcast that explores the Book of Common Prayer as a manual for living out our lives. My name is Father Tyler Richards, and I am joined here today, as usual, with Father Joshua Nelson as we continue our exploration of the Book of Common Prayer and as we continue our study of the liturgy for the Triduum, the three holiest days in the church year. Good afternoon, Father. Afternoon, Father. Blessed All Souls' Day.
1: Indeed, we're I mean, recording this November the second. I think it is uh, interesting that for our All Hallows Eve service at St. Peter's. I discussed about the autumnal triduum of All Hallows Eve, All Saints Day, and All Souls' Day, and then here we are recording in the middle of our
0: spring vernal triduum exploration. I heard someone somewhere out there in the interwebs describe this particular Triduum, uh, All Hallows' Eve, All Saints, All Souls' Day, as the Triduum of the Dead. And I thought that sounded kind of metal. So I thought (laughs) I'd put that in. Is that your new band name? (laughs) The Triduum (coughs) of the Dead. Dead. Yeah, It's it's got a nice ring to it. You can dance to it. Um you and I are coming to our happy band of listeners from a different platform today. We are how exciting. Thanks to the good folks at Forward Movement, our new sponsors and affiliates. Uh we are we are now uh, being hosted on a different site. Uh uh different set of tools, different set of behind-the-scenes stuff that our faithful listeners will never have to see or deal with. Uh, but uh, we are grateful to the people of Forward Movement for taking us on. And uh, we'll try to do Scott Gunn and his uh, his band. Mowage? No. No, it not Mowage. <laughs> uh,
1: today, we are exploring, first of all, Holy Saturday – Uh, which a lot of people don't really know about. And as we were preparing for today's um, podcast, discovered some new information for ourselves, that this liturgy um, is not as common around the church as
0: we thought it was. I was going to say, Holy Saturday, Father Joshua, isn't Holy Saturday the vigil? Well, no, Robin, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Tucked inside of the liturgies or <coughs> the Triduum. And for those of you who are just joining us for this exploration, the Triduum being defined as Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the Easter of Vigil. We still get to call it a Triduum because two services happen on the same day. Um, but the service for Holy Saturday is one little bitty page on page 283 in the Book of Common Prayer. And again, if you are using the online version of the Book of Common Prayer found at dcponline.org, um, you will find this under Proper Liturgies for Special Days, Holy Saturday. Yeah, and... Um... Most
1: parishes that I know of don't do this or the people that do do this service are like the flower people, the altar guild that is preparing for um, Saturday night for the great vigil. But it is a wonderful little service and it is something that you can do on your own and do at home because it's just um a, a office of the word and prayers. There is no... Eucharist served on this day. No communion. That has all been taken care of on Good Friday. Um, The ombri is empty. And this is the service that we remember kind of the end of Christ's passion when he is laid in the tomb. This is also known as the Great Sabbath or the Great Saturday. It's a day of almost nothingness, a day of quiet and rest as Christ laid in the tomb
0: you know given everything that we have here one could almost adapt this into a form that would be suitable for something like i don't know morning prayer oh wow or noonday prayer Or noonday prayer it's almost like they give you a collect and suggested readings for the day including psalms Mm. And then a reading from the epistle and then a reading from one of the gospels. It's almost like it's set up so you could take this and go, Hey, I think I'll do morning prayer with this. Yeah. Like it could as,
1: as we've already discussed, is something you can do
0: on your own and really should. If your parish is not offering Holy Saturday. Uh, and again, as Father Joshua said, normally this kind of office when it is prayed, and it is technically an office if if we're all things considered, it's done by your flower guild who's getting set up for what follows Holy Saturday, or it's being said by the altar guild or um or perhaps it's being said by your priest in private somewhere. So feel free to add your own prayers to the prayers of the church as, as you prepare for what follows Holy Saturday. And we keep saying what follows Holy Saturday because that's a different episode. We're going to talk a little bit about what follows Holy Saturday, but that's following Holy Saturday. So here we are. Now following Holy, follow
1: Holy Saturday has lost all meaning to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, just a little bit more background on this. I'm, I'm coming to you from, uh, Lent and Holy Week and the great 50 days, a ceremonial guide by, um, Leon Mitchell and in it for Holy Saturday, he says, Holy Saturday, also called the Holy Sabbath and the great Sabbath is an empty day. I love that. The day when Christ rested in the tomb and all creation awaited the resurrection it's like everything is just silent and there's this tense humming energy as we're awaiting the resurrection. Um this does not appear in the traditional Roman rite or in the Sarum rite which comes out of uh, Salisbury in England but does appear, Father Tyler, where?
0: So this liturgy can actually be traced back um, to a book called the Ambrosian Missal, which rep- which was the style of liturgy that was being used and is still used around the areas of Milan. Um, and it also appears in the Gallican uh, Missal, which is the Missal, the, the Book of Worship that was being used in France. So, of all things, the Italians and the French continue to keep this up in their missiles, and, and this dates back to about the eighth century.
1: About the eighth that was being century, written down, uh, um, but it does appear in one of the earliest books of common prayer for the Anglican Communion back in
0: fifteen forty nine. In fact, the earliest book of common prayer, according to the rite of the Church of England. Um, and it, it shows up in the Book of Common Prayer, um, where it's provided with a psalm, Psalm 88, as an entrance psalm, an epistle, and a gospel for use at the communion on Easter even. Um, the gospel was the Matthäan account of the burial, which had been read at the conclusion of the Passion narrative on Palm Sunday. Uh, for the epistle, the book provided 1 Peter 3 17 through 22 which is an account of our Lord's descent into hell, linking his death and resurrection with the rite of baptism. And the Palm Sunday Collect would have been used for the day. Um, It does show up again in the the Scottish Book of Common Prayer in 1637, which is sort of the predecessor, one of the places that we pull our own uh, liturgical ancestry from, the Scottish Episcopal Church. It's, yeah, the, the Scottish Book of Common Prayer and the English Book of Common
1: Prayer are kind of the two parents or grandparents of the American Book of Common Prayer.
0: Um, so the Scottish book in 1637 provides a special collect, a revised version of which was included in the 1662 revision to the Book of Common Prayer, according to the use of the Church of England. Uh, and although celebration of the Eucharist on Good Friday became a common practice in the Anglican Church, the Saturday before Easter retained the nature of a period of preparation for the celebration of Easter. And all of that information comes to you uh, via our patron saint of Marian Hatchett from his commentary on the American Prayer Book. Shall we turn to the actual
1: Right to the office as given into the, in the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, I'm already there. Oh, good. Let us pray. O oh God, creator of heaven and earth, grant that as the crucified body of your dear son was laid in the tomb and rested on this holy Sabbath, so we may await with him the coming of the third day And rise with him to newness of life, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
0: Amen. So as an office, um, obviously we begin our readings with the Old Testament. And what we're given for an Old Testament reading comes from the book of Job bit of an interesting choice for a Old Testament reading in the midst of a time that is full of so much tension. Hmm. And, and really
1: as we go into the depths, it is us crying out, where is God, which is
0: what Job does quite a bit. Job as the self-described man of constant sorrow, man <laughs> who is a uh, afflict, who is, Familiar with affliction in the midst of the book of Job cries out um, in this 14th chapter. Um, And it's almost so short that you can read it, which I think I will. Mm -hmm. A mortal born of woman, few of days and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers flees like a shadow and does not last. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Do you bring me into judgment with you? Can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one can. Since their days are determined and the number of their months is known to you and you have appointed the bounds that they cannot pass, look away from them and desist that they may enjoy like laborers their days. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump dies in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth branches like a young plant. But mortals die and are laid low. Humans expire, and where are they? As waters fail from a lake and rivers, river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down and do not rise again. Until the heavens are no more, they will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in shale, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If mortals die will they live again? All the days of my service I would wait until my release should come.
1: Mm-hmm. this reading uh, If you could go again to the part about the uh,
0: a tree will come again. Uh, verse 7. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its roots and that its shoots will not cease. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, every year at Swanee, the seminarians have a quiet day in the fall and in the spring. And I quite remember, I believe it was for my middler year, Father Tyler, your senior year, we were at St. Mary's up on the mountain and I was t- on one of the breaks taking a walk. And this is right after I had done my hospital chaplaincy, which was really rough, dealing with a lot of pain and death and suffering. And as I went for a walk along the lane, I was coming up on the Sisters Cemetery, because uh, a, 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 the Sisters of St. Mary live up there. I was coming up on the cemetery and there was a stump that was cut rather low to the ground of an evergreen tree. And right out of the middle of the stump was a new shoot with needles and life and everything. In the middle of what should have been dead was new life coming forth. And I think that is such a great, great image that we are given first thing on the day that we're hearing about Jesus' body being buried and laid in the tomb.
0: It's actually interesting because as you were thinking of that, some of the cadence and some of the um, imagery that is present inside of of that that passage from Job reminded me of Tolkien,, mm-hmm. and um, the great prophecy about the the second coming, if you will, of the kings of Gondor, uh, and Tolkien writes in the Fellowship of the Ring, this is the first place it shows up. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And if you hold that up next to Job, and if you hold those two things up in the midst of Holy Saturday, it's almost like spoilers. Like... It, it it points us. It points us to something very powerful because even in the passage from Job, we get this. We get this almost reverse foreshadowing. Um, in verse ten, but mortals die and are laid low; humans expire, and where are they? And if we just circle around that verse and go wait a minute, what happens after Good Friday? Mm -hmm. And we begin to meditate on the nature of Jesus. Then maybe we begin to see the first little shoots of flame shooting up from the ashes already as we begin Mm -hmm. to think about what we do on the eve of Easter.
1: It's, It's that... That tension, that vibration, uh, I, I like how you said the, the flames coming up from the ash, because the only way that flames come up from the ash are when there are hidden embers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All it takes is a slight breath and they
0: glow. Right. Oof. Oof. Um, Think about the power of the, of the ruach, the breath of God. Yeah. Um, and Jesus is lifeless body laying in the tomb wrapped in a shroud um and yet and yet the fullness of jesus's essence everything that he is is not just laying in the tomb yeah there's more going on than meets the eye well and I i think it is important
1: not to also not to get ahead of ourselves to that's the reason we have this liturgy for holy saturday so that we can be in that moment um something that has been lost in our culture primarily is an understanding and a comfortableness with death, right? We have sanitized death. Death doesn't happen uh, where we live. It's shut away. It is in hospice centers. It is in hospitals. I I understand that is not always the case, but in general, particularly in the United States, It is something that happens there, and we can leave it there. Our loved ones die, and we step out of the way, and somebody else rushes in to take care of the body. Mm -hmm. Historically, that is not the case. Historically, someone usually is born at home and dies at home. And you are there with the deceased. And it is you who tends to the body. This is still a great custom. I believe in Islam, I'm not sure, but I know in Judaism that uh, family members are the ones that come and do the rite of washing the body. And as we read in the gospel of this kind of purification, the anointing and the wrapping and preparation for burial, it is intimate and hands-on, and you are there with it. You're not separated from it. You live in that, live in the moment of death, which I think takes us well into our Psalms. Um, We get two options for this office, one being Psalm 130, which is very familiar, at least the first line, out of the depths have I cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear consider well the voice of my supplication. This is the cry of one who is who is in distress, the one who is laid in the tomb, one who is in Sheol, as Job says, in that dusty place where we believe that we are separated, from God, we are cut off from God. And the second is Psalm 31, verses one through five, which I'm just going to read since it's so short. But it begins as this: "In You, O Lord, have I taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in Your righteousness. Incline Your ear to me. Make haste to deliver me. Be my strong rock, a castle to keep me safe. For You are my crag and my stronghold." For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that they have secretly set for me. For you are my tower of strength. Into your hands I commend my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O Lord, O God of truth. This should recall for us the day before, right? Right. This takes us back to Good Friday and those final few words of Jesus where he does say, "Into your hands I commit my spirit." I commit my spirit, and if you think about that, as Jesus is just quoting, has been quoting in his head, and finally says one part out loud of Psalm one thirty one, "Into your hands I commend my spirit," and the part we don't hear, "For you have redeemed me,
0: O Lord, O God of truth." Mm. So even in the even in the midst of death, hope is present, always. Even in the midst of what is surely unbearable suffering and agony, there is still light. The- there
1: is a there is a, a an twinkling of starlight, there is a soft glow of ember. It may not be so easy to see, but it is there
0: if you just look, if you if you blow on the ashes a bit. I, I don't want to be glib about this because it's it's a powerful moment of of hope. Um, and it's it's a powerful testimony to our belief as Christians about what we believe happens in our death. But we have to remember that it is God who has died in this point. Uh, it yes. is God who has surrendered up God's essence. Um, and almost as a taunt to death... Um, God, God appears, and I want to emphasize, appears to be overtaken by death. But I don't want to steal the thunder of St. John Chrysostom. We'll get there. We'll get there. And like you say, you know, you don't want to rush through it. You don't want to sanitize it. You don't want to separate yourself from it. Because in truth, we cannot separate ourselves from death. Um, Yeah. As as Mary Oliver writes in her great poem, "When Death Comes," um, death will come for us all one day, like a hungry bear comes in winter, uh, and will will uh, will arrive on all of our doorsteps. And so, as much as we want to push the experience of death away, and as much as we want to try and cleanse ourselves from the idea of it. It's not something we can actually run from. No, not at all. Not at all. Um,
1: It is in a convoluted way, a part of life. It is one of those parts of life that is a great equalizer for all die. And as we are shown in the gospel, even God is willing to go that far.
0: Yeah, you're you're giving me more um, giving me more Tolkien vibes here. <laughs> I thought I was. Go for it. There's this great scene in Return of the King where Minas Tirith, the city of the kings, um, the great capital city of. Of the realm of men and Middle Earth is under siege by the armies of evil, the armies of Mordor and of Minas Morgul, and um, this only happens in the movie. It's it's something that Peter Jackson imagines. It doesn't actually. This particular scene doesn't occur in the book. So you Tolkien purists, do not at me. Do not waste the uh, do not waste the energy to send me a nasty email about this. We're thinking of you. Tim we're thinking of you Tim if you're out there listening but in the movies at least there's this great there's this great interaction that happens between Peregrine Took who of course is one of the hobbits that has left the Shire with Frodo and Sam and has entered into the Fellowship of the Ring and there's this moment between Peregrine Took and Gandalf the White who I don't need it who, if you don't know who Gandalf the White is, stop what you're doing and go watch Lord of the Rings and then come back to this podcast. Where Pippin, his nickname, looks at Gandalf and says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And I get verklempt reading it. (laughs) Because even in the midst of all of this death that is going on around them in in the city of men, Gandalf is there speaking a word of hope to peregrine Took, and if we extrapolate this out into our our lives here we have the office of holy saturday pointing us back towards hope Mm
1: -hmm. even as jesus
0: is still lying in the tomb we haven't even begun to put the kindling together for the paschal fire we have glimmers of hope that continue to erupt up out of these ashes um i gotta be careful or i'll get tolkien and scripture mixed up and uh (laughs) My Tolkien purist will really come for me because, as we all know, Tolkien hated allegory. So, so, having, so having digested the Psalms, we move into the epistle, um, which is from the first letter of Peter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. But they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead. So that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Maintain constant love for one another for love covers a multitude of sins. I think that one line
1: there at the end is such great comfort and it's it's so fortifying in the midst of despair and, and, you know, thinking of the early Christians going through true persecution uh, sitting in a cell waiting to be fed to the lions, yet we have those words, above all,
0: maintain constant love for one another. The, the clincher for me is the last bit of that last verse. For love covers a multitude of sins. We can't step away from it because we can't just say, oh, isn't that beautiful scripture coming from coming from those epistles at the end of the New Testament? Because it is love that has covered a multitude of sins. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, literally, it is love that has that has covered those, and and continues to cover those, and cries out from the cross, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And then at the end, cries out, "It is finished." It. It is literally the incarnation of God that does this work. And that, that moment of power and majesty and that stands in strong juxtaposition against the horror and the agony and the pain, our greatest moment of sorrow and of, of heartache becomes our greatest moment of victory. And love covers a multitude of sins because love literally atones for the sins. It's love is the only thing powerful enough.
1: Love is the only thing strong enough to go through this, to go through this. Yes. Father Tyler,
0: (laughs) he's getting a club. I don't want folks to think that, That fantasy literature has taken over the podcast today, but it has taken over the podcast today. Well,
1: normally we go through uh, musical theater, so it's okay to live in the realm of fantasy literature.
0: But I'm I'm going to take us away from the world of Middle Earth, and I'm going to take us rather into the realms of Narnia. And I'm going to take us to the moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the great lion Aslan comes forward and lays his life down on the stone table to answer for Edmund's crimes, to make things right. Aslan had done nothing wrong. Aslan, being the perfect Christ-like Christ. character, um, gives up his life in, in an act of sacrifice For Edmund, who had sinned, for Edmund, who had broken one of the laws of Narnia. And I I will take that a step further. He
1: gives up his life and he lays down on the stone table in an act of love
0: for Edmund. Exactly. Breaking the powers of evil, uh, destroying the power of evil, in fact. The old magic. The old magic, making way for something new as new life surges into Narnia it's uh, and it is it
1: is that there is something more powerful than even that evil can ever understand and the wicked can ever understand because this is the point you hear that uh in this i believe it's in this chapter that aslan roars at the white witch and says do not quote the old ma- the dark the old magic to me i was there when it was written Aslan knows that there is something more powerful that she is unaware of.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. There when it was written in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. C.S. Lewis, I would like to point out didn't have a problem with allegory. (laughs) But it's like Tolkien and Lewis were great theologians. Almost like Tolkien and Lewis were best friends who used to go to the pubs together. (laughs) Which is where a lot of the best theology occurs. Which is where a lot of the stories got written too. (laughs) (laughs) Our
1: readings then take us into the gospel and we are given two choices. We are given the Passion narrative according to Matthew in chapter 27 And then also according to John in chapter 19. And I'd like to add that um, there's a suggestion given by Leon Mitchell in his book on the ceremonial guide where he says it is recommended announcing the gospel in the following way. And this is not written in the book of common prayer. So to all you priests and liturgists out there, take it for what you will. I think it's a great idea. He writes in the following way. The conclusion of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew or John. In conclusion of the passion, the suffering has ended.
0: Today we'll take our cues from the Gospel of John, as the last podcast that you all would have heard from us would have been the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. And as Paul Harvey would say, here is the rest of the story. Beginning at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let us go to Jerusalem
1: for just a moment. Father Tyler and I have had the great honor to have visited these holy places, in particular, the Church of the Resurrection, also known as the Holy Sepulcher. Within this massive Byzantine medieval structure is contained the stone of Golgotha or the place known as Calvary that Jesus was crucified and an edicule or a small chapel that covers the place believed by most Christians to be the tomb of Jesus. They are not far from each other at all. In fact, if you stand on the platform where it is believed that Jesus was crucified, you can look and see the entrance of the Atticule, the entrance of the tomb. How far apart do you, would you say they are, Father Tyler?
0: Um, if I think about it in terms of a football field, probably 20 yards. Yeah, I was going to say in, in, in Southern parlance, it's a stone's
1: throw away. Um, it's not far to travel. The the place of extreme torture and death and the place that will become the center of the world in hope of resurrection are just a breadth
0: apart. Well, and, and we have to remember that, you know, it is Western tradition that calls it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Our Orthodox sisters and brothers refer to it as the Church of the Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, i I like to call it um, sort of the ecclesiastical Mall of America because you've got all of these different churches that are living together under one roof. I mean, and you've got all of these different Christian sects that are all that have all surrounded this moment of this liturgical, this ecclesiastical, architectural moment of power. Um, everybody wants to be there, which is, in fact, why they give the keys to the place to the Muslims, so that the Christians can't keep each other out. But that's neither here nor there. Um, um, but it is, it is, it is within that stone's throw that that it all goes down. Um, and there's a there's a candle
1: in between them, in between the two spots, about halfway, where it is set. And that just stood and watched the crucifixion and that, as the body was taken down that who stood and watched the crucifixion, Mary, the mother of Christ.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll have some more to say on my own experience inside of the inside of the church of the resurrection, the church of the Holy Sepulcher, when we get to, uh, to Holy Saturday, um, but the, the vigil of Saturday, the vigil of Saturday um, uh, about, about my, three different trips into the church of the 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 structure itself um, and the things that you experience while you're the things you're experiencing while you're waiting to enter into the tomb.
1: Um, mm. 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 <laughs> Just that line right there the things you experience while waiting to enter the tomb that'll preach within itself.
0: I think, it's, I think it's interesting that in, in the rubrics for, for Holy Saturday um, that it directs you after, after the gospel reading. This great moment where this secret disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, comes forward and is joined by this, this other secret disciple of Jesus, Nicodemus, Mm-hmm. They team up and prepare the body of Jesus and wrap it in aloes and myrrhs and, and lay it in the tomb. These secret followers of Jesus, one who literally comes to Jesus by night in darkness, the shroud of night, is the one who ferries the body of Jesus into the darkness of the tomb. This This man, this Nicodemus, whose name in Greek literally translates to leader of the people, takes Jesus into the darkness of the tomb and sees that the stone is rolled in front of the door. Then Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea,
1: who were at best disciples from a distance throughout his living ministry, they were disciples from a distance. Yet they are the ones who literally hold the body and go into Sheol, go into the dusty place of death with Christ.
0: There's also some legends, uh, some apocryphal stories that the tomb that Jesus is laid in actually belongs to Joseph of Arimathea, that he is the one who has paid for the tomb and had it carved out and ready to go for himself and puts Jesus in his own tomb. Mm -hmm. Um, and if that story has any bearing in truth whatsoever, it almost makes you wonder what was going on there. If it was Joseph's way of, of contributing to the cause, or if it's Joseph's way of saying, eh, he's not going to be in there long enough to worry with it, we'll just put him in there, because in three days he's going to be back anyway. Um, there's a tension there in that story. That would be a that would be an, a great
1: Christian novel. What did Joseph know of the, Joseph of Arimathea? It'd
0: make a much better song than Mary. Did you know? But that's neither here nor there. We'll get there eventually. Also, do not at me for my dislike of Mary. Did you know? Uh, I will not be take ta- I will not be taking statements at this time. Thank you very much.
1: After the proclamation of the gospel. There is room for a, I would say, brief homily. Um, and often how I've done it is less of a homily and more of a discussion. As we all kind of stand together at the, at the entrance to the tomb and talk about what we are experiencing, what we are feeling.
0: I, I like what the rubric does here by placing and homily in parentheses, it's almost like the homily is, is extra. It's, it's almost, it's almost like the homily just hangs out there and, and is like, you can do it if you feel brave enough to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe the framers of the prayer book were trying to caution us away from saying too much in the midst of silence. Mm -hmm.
1: that can be said for i believe for the entire prayer book
0: that can Um, be said for the entire experience of human life yeah we're constantly trying to fill great spaces with empty words and they don't hold up under the weight no silence is much more powerful Uh so uh let that be an invitation and a warning Then
1: we are invited uh, to pray or sing the anthem from the burial of the dead in the midst of life. That comes from um, page four eighty four or four ninety two of the Book of Common Prayer. We try
0: to find it. I'm already there. Okay. This this hymn this anthem comes straight out of the burial rite in the midst of life we are in death of whom uh, in the midst of life we are in death of whom may we seek for succor but of thee o lord who for our sins art justly displeased yet o lord god most holy o lord most mighty o holy and most merciful savior Deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord, most holy, O God, most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal. Suffer us not at our last hour through any pains of death to fall from thee. And that's it after that's there's, there's that. And then the Lord's prayer prayer and the ministers bow to the altar and
1: to the empty altar, I might add and leave in silence. In other words, it's not over yet. Folks.
0: Stick around. Um, There's more work to be done. I think it's important that we talk about the whole of of the Triduum in the sense of a great liturgical mechanism that, take us, that takes us from a moment of goodbyes, a moment of celebration, of a Passover, a moment among friends and among those who are close with each other, into a moment of uncertainty, into a moment of betrayal, into a moment of anguish, into a moment of death, and into a moment of silence, but doesn't leave us there. The prayer book has more work for us to do. Our spirituality calls us to something more. We know that this isn't where the story ends, but as usual, this is where we have to leave it. We have to leave this moment, we have to carry it with us in our hearts and move away from this moment so that we can carry it with us into the next moment, so that it informs the next moment. You have to have Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday before you can have the Great Vigil of Easter, the Great Keeping Watch of Easter.
1: And as I said, we have to get away from that sanitization of death. Yeah. We have, that is why it is so important to actually live into all of these offerings, all of these services, so that the Great Vigil means so much more. Easter Sunday means so much more. Every Sunday then will mean so much more.
0: So, with the end, we begin to contemplate what is the first signs of the new beginning. And with the end of the Liturgy for Holy Saturday, we begin to contemplate our next episode and our discussion what comes in the later hours of Holy Saturday and the early morning of Easter Sunday. Next time on the BCP and Me, we will begin our discussion of the Great Vigil of Easter, a great liturgical complex of services that leads us through a full exploration of the story of salvation and God's final victory over sin, death, and the grave as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as we contemplate bringing new believers into the faith, and as we celebrate the fullest celebration of the Holy Eucharist on what is indeed the most holy evening of the church year. So, Father Joshua, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.